Would you like for me to tell you a little joke? Yes? Are you laughing now? Alright, welcome to episode 3 of season 2 of Embrace the Suck, the only official, licensed, sanctioned, traffic-obstructing podcast of APG, bringing you two cents worth of free perspective on the heavy-hitting lifestyle. I'm your host, Bill Hart, coming to you almost live, this time from Egyptian Boat Driving School, where Austin Powers has just been hired to teach three-point turns. If you don't get the gag there, I'm sure you will pretty soon. We'll go down that rabbit hole directly. I'll, I'll drag you down there where I've been spending some time. Uh, Today's topic, though, we're going to talk about interviews as things start to open back up and, uh, you know, all the people that lost their jobs and had to close their businesses. When you got to go and interview for that for that gig at Walmart, for the gig that's going to keep the lights on, um, you want to be at the top of your game. So we'll go over a couple hints and tips there. So uh, as you can see, the timeliness on the release of these podcasts is slipping a little bit, and that's just with things picking back up, man, we're uh, we're getting some gigs going and having people call us and putting programs together. On top of which, I started down this this uh, this road of getting called as a financial consultant. And anybody that knows me, you know, I have no business being in a room with numbers. But you know, whatever. I had time, and I you know I was I was hoping the pandemic thing would go on a little longer. But you know, sadly, I'm gonna have to juggle two or three chainsaws at once but that's not going to deprive you fair listener from um the madness that is embrace the suck so let's get into it so before we get to today's topic i was looking for you know i always look for like a little news story that's try to find something that's not political to you know kind of lighten the mood and set the tone and yeah here's a little breath of fresh air but, um, you know, almost everything is it's just bad noise and it's weirdness. So I, I look for a news story and it wasn't too hard to find something interesting and peculiar. So if you've been uh, asleep under a rock for the last, you know, I don't know, a week or so, there's a uh, there's a ship that's wedged sideways in the uh, in the Suez Canal, the uh, the mega container ship ever given. I guess it's like I, I don't remember how long, super, super long. But in any case, it has run aground, ran aground on Tuesday, March 23rd, and is completely blocking the Suez Canal. And it really looks like that Austin Powers backward forward situation. I'll be right there. Right. That deal. And it's uh, it's blocking the Suez Canal, which is the busiest shipping lane in the world, which accounts for about 10 percent of the world's transported goods. So I actually saw a meme that was pretty funny and it was uh. It's saying it's got a picture on the top of, you know, like the little ship finder thing. And it's got all the dots with ships going through the, the Suez Canal. And on the bottom, it's got a picture of, I guess, what is that? Cape of Good Hope, the bottom of, of Africa, going around the horn, if you will. And it's got all these ships headed that way. And at the top, it says, reject modernity, embrace tradition. So, yeah, it's like the long way around. But we'll get into that. So Suez Canal, if you're not quite sure where that is, or you didn't pay attention in um, whatever class that would have been in. Suez Canal is a man-made connection between the Red Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. It's 120 miles long and is primarily used for hauling crude products. So 
that's not nudie mags or something. That's crude oil, liquefied natural gas, and uh, a bunch of other stuff going from the Middle East to Europe and North America. So, uh, so this boat, the motor vessel Ever Given, has run aground right in the middle of the canal. And uh, apparently it was going fast enough that it, it, the back of it spun out to the side and got wedged up on the other side. So this ship is um, it's flagged out of Panama. It's owned by a Japanese corporation and manned by a 25-person crew um, from India. Uh, it ships goods for Evergreen Group, which is a Taiwanese conglomerate, and was being steered at the time by an Egyptian pilot. So, a true international effort. Good work, everyone. Good work. Solid work. For people that don't know what a pilot is, whenever you go out, uh, you're going to take a ship into somewhere, like into a port or through a, like a narrow passageway, there will be a service that comes on and provides what they call a pilot. And that's somebody who specializes in steering ships through exactly that little area. So, good times, though. Um, true international effort there. But so the question, though, as I'm looking at this thing is, is will this affect the U.S. or more appropriately, how will it affect you? And obviously, a lot of what goes through there is um, is oil. And, you know, as soon as you see something like this, the immediate thought is, oh, this is my my gas prices are going to go up. Well, yes, but not for the reason you think. So listen to this. I looked a little bit into and I don't know anything, you know, I'm not Mr. Oil guy. So someone from Texas with a big hat, don't ride up on a horse and be like, let me tell you a thing or two about oil production, son. All right. Uh, but I did look into a few things and it was, it was pretty interesting. So the U S is a top crude oil producer was the, one of the top crude oil producers between 2018 and 2019. And this is according to the U S energy information administration. So the U.S. produced oil, though, only accounts for about 40% of the oil used in the U.S. So before anybody breaks out the tinfoil, apparently there are different kinds of crude oil and different oils are used for different stuff. And I didn't go that far down the rabbit hole, but I did go a little ways, talk to a few different rabbits. So the U.S. In the, in the oil business imports, refines, and then exports oil. That's a lot of what goes on with this imported oil. Most of the stuff that we import is from Canada. 56% of the oil we import comes from Canada, who is the world's fourth largest producer of, of oil. And, you know, if anybody remembers the thing about, you know, up in, up in uh, Alaska, how we have, you know, that huge oil reserve up there, there's a huge belt, I guess, of, of I don't know, what do you call it, oil or underground, you know, petroleum reserves underground between Alaska, down the west coast of Canada, through the Dakotas, and then all the way down to Texas. So Canada is the fourth largest producer in the world. Um, we get 10%, uh, a little less than 10% from Mexico, and a little less than 10% from Saudi. So in it was only 2014, 2013, 2014, that imports from Canada surpassed imports from OPEC, which means that we had been steadily steering towards using using Canada, you know, keeping it sort of in-house, in-continent. <laughs> Wait a minute, no, on-continent, if you will, right? So also, Canada also imports crude oil as well as oil refined into transportation fuels from the U.S. So we import oil from them, and then they import oil from us. So more specifically, we kind of get it, refine it, and then 
export it again. And they're one of our bigger customers. So according, according to uh, their own apologetic government site on energy usage, and if you've never been to, to Canada, sorry is one of the things you'll hear more than anything else. It's, it's something else. It's hilarious. But um, according to them, the reason that they do this is that the U.S. is closer to certain markets, so which is to say they would ship it here, it gets refined, and then they would ship it out to, say, you know, the east coast of Canada because they say they don't have a pipeline to do that. And they also don't have the ability to refine certain products so that's why they do it the way they do. But back to the Suez Canal. So it's about 2 million barrels per day that move through the Suez Canal, which is about 5% of daily global production. So along with about 10% of the global trade, then it might not seem like that much. But if you consider that there are about 90 countries that produce oil, so which means that a lot of those countries aren't relying on oil that comes through the Suez Canal. They've got it you know, right there already. So places like North America, you would think wouldn't be directly affected because obviously we have Canada and we produce our own. South America, you know, you're looking at Mexico produces oil, um, Venezuela, huge oil customer, but there's embargoes against them right now. But as oil goes, then the people who are going to take heavies on this is going to be Western Europe as though they don't have enough problems already. Right. Eastern Europe has Russia right there. And I looked a little bit into Russian oil production, but you know more on that later. But it does make you wonder then, uh, looking at this situation, if this doesn't present as an ideal opportunity for interested parties to uh, see if they can't meet the needs of Western Europe and the other people who are going to see problems uh, from this Suez Canal situation as they start feeling the pinch. So how people say, you know, every problem, it's an opportunity. Well, this, this is a big opportunity. For who? Well, for us. And for Russia, so it for for my money, right? It comes down to the U.S. and Russia. It's a, it's a chance to take advantage here. And looking further into Russian oil production, then I looked at an article by Bloomberg Businessweek, and um, at present the U.S. is discouraging our European allies, if we can even call anyone at this point an ally. But we're encouraging our Western European partners to shy away from the Siberian pipeline idea that would increase Russia's ability to supply oil throughout Europe. So in the same article, though, it goes on to say, you know, something that, that doesn't get mentioned on the American or Canadian sites, that Russian oil imports to the U.S. have steadily increased since OPEC cut production. And with the sanctions in place against Venezuela, Russia has become the number three oil supplier to the U.S., so if you think back to all that song and dance about our oh, Russia, 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 and all oh, these evil Russians, well, wait a minute, man, you're doing business on the regular, right? Number three oil supplier. So this same article obviously had the obligatory interview with some DC mouthpiece that says, oh, so much for the talk about energy independence, huh? Oh, I showed you. But it's really, it's, it's such a small-minded, boring way that some of these people break everything down to either a good take or a bad take. And it just kind of shows you that most of the talk that you hear on some of these things is just distraction and misdirection anyway. And here's what I mean by that. All right, so listen to this. So the U.S. reached peak import levels in 2005. After that, the amount of oil that we imported started decreasing. And then in about 2013, 2014, we saw an inversion between production, and that's refined products as well as crude production. Uh, we saw an inversion then between production and imports. So we started importing a whole lot less than we were, we were producing and sending out. 
And we saw an even bigger disparity then between production and net imports. So when we import something and then refine it and then send it out, well, it's not really an import. You know, I mean, it is, but you're getting something out of it. It's not like you're relying on somebody else. Those other people are kind of relying on you, right? Because you're doing something with it and sending it back out the door. So it gets interesting when you start considering all the factors because the U.S. does have massive reserves and at present appears to be out front where we start talking about refining and exporting, uh, which is to say it looks like we're in a position where we have the ability to refine, uh, I, I don't know, at a quality or at an efficiency level that other people apparently don't have. And then we also have um, Venezuela in the back pocket, which means that if we ever decide that, hey, you know, Venezuela is not that bad. Hey, Russia, guess what? I'm, I'm not especially interested in doing business anymore. See you later. Then we could still import from Venezuela. On top of all this uh, is the fact that oil is only bought and sold in dollars. So it's that petrodollar thing, if you haven't heard of it. That's, that's a, a global agreement that Oil is only bought and sold in American dollars, in dollars American, depending on what flea market you're in. And looking at it from that perspective, the U.S. appears to, do, to be doing pretty well. However, comma, Russia also has massive reserves and that proximity to both Europe and Asia because, you know, look at the size of it, right? So this, this, uh, this Suez Canal situation, they're talking about it could go on for some time. At first, they were talking about it's going to take a day or two to get this unstuck. That's terrible, which is which I think it, the, the last figure I saw was $9 billion a day that's not going through there, right? Because of this, because of this really solid piece of driving, which uh, I also saw as being attributed to high winds. There was a stiff breeze. And so now $9 billion a day, right? But uh, it is interesting that Russia or U.S. might be in a position to um, improve their standing just based on this bit of misfortune. But the question then, the original question, what does this mean for you? So you might think that if it's going to improve standing for America or for even people just on the North American continent, that your gas prices should go down, right? But the one thing that you can count on is that uh, if they're going to try to lock up any kind of a deal with Western Europe because of this situation, that your prices are going to be the ones that help subsidize any sweet deal that gets put on the table. So the thing you can count on is that locking up and shutting out competition means offering that better price, which of late means that you, Joe Taxpayer, are about to get left holding the bag. You're going to pick up the other end of this thing. So you can actually expect to pay more for that Sunday drive because billionaires don't become trillionaires by letting you wander off with a little bit of your folding money intact. Yeah, so that turned into, um, you know, not as much of a of a happy ha-ha note, but there are some pretty good memes out there. If you get a chance to look at some Suez Canal memes, there's, um, there's one, I guess, that somebody put together an entirely fake news story. Put together like an entirely fake news story that it was uh, the first Egyptian female boat captain that was um, that was driving this thing when it got stuck, and apparently this this person this 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 woman that they named is a real person, but has been out of driving ships and she's doing some uh, some other job some other position I don't know what, but somebody had contacted her and said hey is this true is this you and she's like she doesn't get the joke that she's like, I don't know why they're saying this. This is great. I don't have anything to do with this. I wish they would leave me alone. 
So, I mean, I, you know, whether it's funny or not, I don't know, but uh, there's some pretty good memes out there. There's some good Austin Power memes. Get a chance. Look it up, you know, brighten your own day. Take some of the load off my shoulders for crying out loud. But today's topic, we're going to talk about uh, interviews. We had the chance to um, sit down with some with some people who are smarter than me. And they said, hey, you know, your your podcasts suck, but they would suck a little less if when you talked, you talked about something specific. Like You don't have to solve for pi every time out, right? You can just talk about one specific thing and then, you know, it'll make it a little more tolerable for the people who are just trying to get through their day. All right. So I said, yeah, man, I could talk about something specific. So figure today we'll talk about interviews, interviews and you. Interviews and you, the art of sitting across from someone. Now, so the idea here, interviews, the concept generally is anytime you're sitting across from somebody in any official capacity and one of you is trying to collect some information and the other person is offering the information, usually doing some question asking and someone else is doing the question answering, okay, long and short. Otherwise, they just call it conversation, right? And probably tea would be served. And sometimes in those uh, those very special occasions, an interview can actually feel like just a conversation, which could be good or could be bad, depending on which side of this you're working, right? So in my experience, I have sat through more than a few interviews, um, ranging from the, the very, my very first entry into the military, you sit through a lot of interviews, and then, you know, down the road later, sitting with... Um, People were fixing to throw in jail or drag out of their house or uh, sitting with clients and talking about what they have going on. All of these things are forms of interviews, right? So my first experience uh, in the Navy was the very straightforward, no nonsense. What the hell do you want here? You know, what's it going to take to get you to, to leave and never come back? And uh, once you actually get in, when, when you get to boot camp, it was pretty, well, I, I want to say funny, but I don't know, weird, I'll say. You go up there and they have like a little psyche valve and it's a guy sitting there with a checklist and he's not even looking at you. He's looking at the checklist and just going down the thing saying, yes, no, yes, no. Uh, have you ever hurt yourself? You ever thought about hurting yourself? You ever thought about hurting yourself or someone else? You know, whatever. Are you just doing this job because you want to hurt people? You ever hurt animals? Do you ever feel compelled to, you know, and, and he's not even looking. I'm just saying, no, 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 no. Are you lying on this interview right now? No. You know, and I, and I finished the thing and I looked at the guy and I said, hey, has anybody ever said yes to any of these? And he looked at me like nobody's ever asked him that before. And he's like, I don't, I don't know. No, I don't think so. Like, all right, cool. Time well spent, right? But uh, even then when I got to SEAL training, uh, there, was, there was more interviews. And usually they were like the really, the really short. Because when you get there, there's a good 75% chance that you're not going to be there for long, right? So they just ask you kind of some quick cursory like, why the hell do you want to be here? And one of the one of the really interesting questions, I guess, was uh, one of the guys, uh, one of the instructors, I guess, cooked this up on his own. But he'd call guys in and he'd say, hey, what makes you think you can get through this program? And I don't think I talked to anybody that said, well, I know that because of this, 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 this. Like, dude, you, you pretty much are figuring you can't. I everybody I talked to while I was there was like, you know, your chances of getting through here are pretty slim. All right? So what makes you think you can? I don't know that I can, but I, you know, if I can just get through today, that'll be a good start, right? But I mean, if you ask me now, what do you think got you through the program? Luck and stupidity. Yeah, for sure. Um 
I talked to a lot of guys that say, yeah, it just came down to being too stupid to quit. And, uh, and luckily that stuck with me. So moving along as, uh, interviews go, got into the interrogations and debriefs side of the interview situation. And this brought me my first good lesson where interviews are concerned. And now's when you can start getting your pens ready. Um, so my very first good lesson was that in a good interview, the information desired is rarely what you hear in the question. So sometimes it's, I'm not asking you this question because I want to hear the answer to this question. I might be asking because I want to see your reaction to it. I want to look or listen to someone hearing you answer it. It could be compared to information that I got earlier on. All right. So these are all things to be aware that maybe the situation is the question. All right. So when, as an example, so when we get on target, uh, say in Iraq, and I've got four or five people here. I don't know who any of these people are. And the situation there was that people didn't have an ID, right? And people in little villages would a lot of times just go over to somebody's house, their friend's house, their family member's house, and they would stay there for a couple days at a time. So you go into one house and there might be nobody there. You go into another house, there might be 10 people there. And you say, well, who is this person? Who is that person? Oh, that's his uncle on his side. And that's my father. That's that guy's kid over there. That's his wife and her family. And so you're trying to sort through all this. So a lot of times, instead of me just trying to figure out and sketch out, well, this is his kid and this is this kid. All I'm doing is comparing answers. So I got one guy. I got one guy in a tracksuit, And I asked somebody else, who is that guy? Oh, it's whoever. Okay, great. I'm not, I don't have to make a note of that. I can just go grab somebody else now and ask them off to the side, that guy in the tracksuit, who is that? If I get different answers, all right, so what I want is not the answer, but the comparison. See what I mean? In the same way in this kind of, uh, this mindset, I've got a friend who um, is currently being looked at for a commanding officer position at a SEAL team. And he called me a couple of weeks ago and he's telling me about this questionnaire they had to fill out. I guess, you know, there's like 10 different guys that are being looked at for, uh, you know, getting a thumbs up, thumbs down for a commanding officer position. And he's telling me about this questionnaire they had to fill out. And th this questionnaire took a good couple hours. And then they called him back and said, hey, you guys don't bother filling out, you know, these questions here in the middle because you don't need them. So I'm talking to him about it and he's saying, what's wrong with these people? Look at you. You have me fill out this whole thing and you wait till later to tell me that I didn't need to do this. I'm going to tell him. I was like, dude, don't tell anybody anything. I said, your reaction to this situation might be the question. And then you hear the light come on like, oh, didn't think of it that way. But you going into an interview Sometimes what we'll hear about people doing is, yeah, I like to leave a candidate sitting in the waiting room for an extra 10, 15 minutes or, you know, something like that. So going into an interview, it's important to be aware that everything you do from the time they have eyes on you or from your first contact, the interview is starting now. Everything you do needs to be exactly the way you want to present it. So I, if I get a chance, I usually don't recommend any of those kind of shady techniques like that, because it, it sort of, in my opinion, makes a bad impression for, you know, is a person supposed to say like, was well, this what I should expect if I work here to kind of have my chain jerked and have you running little scams on me every 10 or 15 minutes to see if I'm doing my job the way you want it done. But, um, you know, it, it is something that's out there. 
And uh, I actually ran into this, I mean, saw this in spades. I, uh, I interviewed with CIA in 2003, and it was, I mean, it was shenanigans a go-go. And anybody that's listened to some of my previous podcasts, you'll know that, I mean, I've got some opinions on that crowd, and the people that are really solid are really solid, and the people that aren't really solid really aren't. But anyway... So I had this interview and uh, it was at this, it was at this fairly high end hotel show up, did the standard, you know, you show up on time and then, you know, they sit in there and have coffee and you wait an extra 15, 20 minutes. But then I go in there and I have this interview with this guy and he's like, he, he wants me to take off my jacket and, you know, it could be presumably to see if, if I have any recording device or maybe he just wants to see if I'm going to be concerned about, you know, if I think he's looking me over extra thoroughly, you know, who knows? So I walk in and he's like, Hey, you know, you can, you can take off your jacket if you want. Some people walk in here and I say, Hey, you can take off your jacket. And they're like, Oh, why do you want to see if I got a gun or a recording device or something? <laughs> those, those people are weird, but you can take it off if you want. I was like, okay, you could just say, man, will you please take off your jacket? You know, whatever. But I say, yeah, okay. Yeah, no problem. Let's, let's relax. Let's get comfortable. We're all friends here. Right. So I'm talking to the guy and he's, you know, he's asking me, you know, some of the standard getting to know you type interview questions. And then he's, he's coughing. He like start, he starts coughing. Like, <laughs> I'm like, Hey, are you all right? And he's, I mean, really hamming it up. I say, hey, are you all right? Oh, I'm fine. I'm just, I'm getting a little sick. I'm just been getting a little sick. So within like five minutes, this guy's coughing, coughing. He's got like a foot up on the desk. I kid you not foot up on the desk. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I'm just, uh, sorry. Go on. What were you saying? I'm like, man. All right. Yeah. So we continue, we continue. And this guy starts down, you know, what are your strengths? You know, some of these, these interview questions that are, I swear these have got to be, these are the ones that are, they just want to see how you're going to answer this, you know? So like, what are your strengths? You know, what do you bring to the table? Okay. Yeah. Fair question. What are your weaknesses? Yeah. Okay. Well, let me tell you everything that sucks about me. Right. So, but I mean, he stayed on this one, stayed on this one. What are your weaknesses? Well, you know, yeah, okay. I've spent a lot of time in the military, you know, there are some things I'm going to have to disabuse myself of if I'm, if I'm going to be in an embassy or at a state department dinner or some kind of thing. Okay. Well, tell me more, more what? Tell me more of your weaknesses, you know, and we, the guy must've stuck on this for a good, a good five, 10 minutes. And finally, I kind of, I feel like I almost lost my temper, you know, and I'm like, I'm a perfectionist. That's what it is. I like things done the right way. And, you know, I just, I just care too much. That's what it comes down to. You know, and you can tell the guy's, kind of, you know, it's kind of an up yours answer. And the guy looks at me like, you're not going to give me any more on this. Sorry. I'm like, no, dude, that's, that's enough. But, um, yeah, over time with, uh, you know, the time we spend with clients, you know, we've been doing what we've been doing for about 11 years now. And, you know, every time you sit down with a client, I mean, for us, these people are paying you to give them good input, give them good feedback based on what you've seen, you know, in your own experience, what you learned academically, what you've seen work with other clients. So for them, it needs to feel like a natural, casual conversation. For you, you need to be paying attention and on point all the time. So in doing that, we've learned a thing or two. Number one, and this is probably, it's it's the the easiest thing to do and it's the easiest thing to overlook. And that's just prepare. Do your homework. 
Figure out who you're talking to. Figure out what you want to say. The test is always easiest when you already know the answers. So if you're going to interview for, you know, a bartending job, what are they going to ask you? Plan out those answers. You can write those things out. Usually I would recommend in bullet points because you don't want to sound too much like the frozen chunk, right? Um, and we'll come to that in a minute. But write these things out usually just in bullet points. Okay, yeah, if they, if they ask me about, you know, I'm interviewing for a bartending job. If they ask me about checking IDs, here's what I do real quick. Bang, bang, bang. And if you can, throw in a little extra of, and for me, a trick that I learned is X. That sets you apart a little bit. When you rehearse this, another one here is to rehearse with your friends. Get somebody to sit down and do an interview with you. It sounds silly, but it works really well to go over that material that you've just cooked up. And I'll tell you why it works really well. When, um, when I was still operational in the SEAL teams, the job that I had was when we would get on target and we're looking for, you know, Carlos the Jackal or whatever. My job, once everything is, you know, the whole building is locked down and we've got everybody rounded up, you know, we might be at, we might be at the Al-Qaeda stronghold. We also might be at just some farmer's house that somebody gave us bad information and I'm just here breaking this guy's furniture, right? So I've got to talk to all these people and figure out who's who in the zoo. Either way, whether it's just farmers or it's the Al-Qaeda stronghold, the one thing they want is to appear as nobody important, so we will just get out of their house and leave them alone. But I've got to talk to these people, and you know, you've, you've got certain techniques and strategies for talking to these people, finding out who's lying, what's the situation here, in, in a small amount of time, because you, you don't want to hang out there for too long. You want to get out of Dodge, right? But what I had to tell other guys, other operators that are just kind of, you know, you're, you're standing around just on security until this business gets wrapped up. You know, you're, you're on security or taking what we call biometric data. That's fingerprints, eye scans, checking IDs if anybody has any, um, all that song and dance. But what I had to tell guys that are just, you know, standing around on security was you've got to not talk to these people. Even if there's an interpreter handy, do not talk to these people. And the reason for that is that SEAL Team guys, we get taught from day one, look for work, find something to do. If there's work to do, find it, do it. So guys just standing there, you know, it gets beat into your head early on that if I'm just standing there, you need to be looking around, figuring out what you could do. But I would have to tell guys, even if there's an interpreter standing right next to you, do not snatch that guy up and start talking to these people. And here's why. If there's some kind of an anomaly in the story where... The guy in the tracksuit, everybody says, you know, like one guy says, well, that's that's my cousin. He's my cousin and he's my uh, uncle on my dad's side's kid. Okay, cool. Now, if I go grab somebody else and I say, who's that guy in the tracksuit? And he says, oh, he's my uh, he's my neighbor from three towns over. Uh, he just moved here looking for work. Now, I have some conflicting stories. So if I connect the dots between the two people telling me these stories, I could find out if this person is somebody sneaking into town who's being hidden, something like that, right? But if these guys, if my guys start talking to these people, it gives them a chance to work through their story. So if the guy says, oh, you're new in town, how did you get in town? What route did you drive in on? Oh, I drove down Route Michigan. 
oh, well, how did you get through that one checkpoint? Oh, yeah. Uh, so actually, it was that that side street that goes through that one village. That's that's how I got here. Oh, okay. So he's helping him fix his own story. The guy's trying to help, but he's actually screwing it up because now when I talk to him, all those holes have been patched. All those anomalies have been glossed over, so I can't find them. So I have to tell him, don't do that. Don't talk to these people. Leave them be. Let me sort it out. But that's how well it can work if you sit down with a friend and you start going over these things. When you've got your material worked out and they come to you and say, all right, you want this bartending job. Okay, somebody walks in with uh, with an ID and you look at it and it looks like this, this, this. How are you going to tell them that you can't help them? You've got to get down the road. Okay, you talk through the whole thing and then you think to yourself, oh, this sounds kind of clunky. It sounds, I, I want to not say that, you know, okay, let me fix this a little bit. Now, when you go in there and do it for real, boom, it sounds smooth, silky smooth, right? Okay, so what I alluded to earlier then on the answers that you give, you can cook these up a couple different ways. Um, I prefer to speak a little bit, you know, I, I like it to sound fresh. I don't like it to sound like I'm running for office. And I think one of the, the easy um, references you could think of is Marco Rubio, if you remember that guy. He's a guy from down in Florida. And when he was running for president, he had this frozen chunk. And I still remember it. And I, I think it was probably what I was thinking of when I wrote the last, uh, you know, when I put together the, the piece you just heard earlier about preparation. He had this frozen chunk, Marco Rubio, about how his father was a poor immigrant from Cuba and he came here and he worked as a bartender and worked his way up. And now his son was fortunate enough to go to university and da 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 And he had this frozen chunk and that guy plugged it in like three different times. And there was one point where this was during the, uh, what's some preliminary debates. It's, I don't even remember what year, but one of the other candidates called him on it and was like, are you going to say anything different? Or are you just going to keep saying that same thing? Why don't you talk about whatever? And he started to talk about that, but then just slipped right back into that frozen chunk. Because you know, when my father came here as an immigrant from Cuba, he was, uh, he was a poor fella. And, uh, he worked as a bartender and worked his way up and his son was lucky enough to go to the university. And it was, it was embarrassing to watch. It was painful to watch. So frozen chunk, it can work for you, but it can also work against you. Another approach you can use is uh, in developing your responses or answers that you expect to give is, um, is, is to craft them so as to preclude any negative things. So, um, for me, like I'm an old dude, right? Like I'm a thousand years old. I don't know how I'm still alive, but because I'm an old dude, right? So saying that I'm going to go apply for some job that I don't really have any experience in, an approach I can take is to preclude somebody saying, well, yeah, how could you do this? You're a thousand years old. I can preclude that by saying, look, because I'm old, I have this, this, this experience. I'm going to be more level-headed. Some of the things that other people might have problems uh, dealing with, I'm going to be ready to handle no worries. Okay, so in that interviewer's mind, that little factor of, yeah, but this guy's a million years old, that's already been addressed. Okay, well, there, it's actually a positive now. Oh, wow. So you can do the same thing if you're a young guy. You can do the same thing if you've got a lot of experience and maybe you're, you know, looking to be underemployed. Any of these things, you just need to shift that perspective into a way that it becomes a positive and get it in there before they have the chance to um, to paint it as a negative. 
So we talked about uh, we talked about the preparation piece. We talked about the kind of answers you can give. Talking about questions now. Talked about answers now. Let's talk about questions. So when you're sitting there and they'll say, you know, as you at least by the time you wrap this up, do you have any questions for me? Now you should be asking a couple questions throughout. There should be some back and forth things you want to know, right? Because that gives the impression that you're somewhat invested, and it also gives the impression that they're not only assessing you for your suitability for this job, you're assessing this company or this workplace for suitability as an employer. Because I don't know if you've seen, um, and I mean, again, big disclaimer, I don't know how factual any of these claims are, or, you know, if it's completely made up, it's only what I've read, man. It's only what I've read. But if you've seen any of these claims uh, that people have been talking for a little while about Amazon, that, hey, you work at Amazon, you're not going to get a minute to even go to the bathroom. You go to the bathroom, you're going to get written up. So, you know, people are you know, peeing in bottles and uh, just they, they dread going to work. So in this kind of a thing, these are questions you would want to ask. Hey, what what is it like working here? What's a typical flow of a workday or a project or your training pipeline? What does that look like? You can ask questions about, well, what did you think when you just started here? Or where do you, you know, where do you see me fitting in here? All of these are questions you can ask. And it, it, one, it demonstrates to them that you're involved in this thing, that you're not just here like at gunpoint, like you have to be. But two, it starts to put them in a little bit of a mindset of this person is on par. You know, they're, they're kind of a peer. You're sort of a peer to that person. They're asking you how you would be as an employee, an employee. You're asking them how they would be as an employer. You're not coming cap in hand. Please, sir, please, I just need to eat. Right, so as a little bonus, I'll throw in a little bit of a bonus here. If you've got these other things mastered, an approach you can take here is shifting that interviewer, whoever he is, whatever he is, into an into you know what I call imagination land, into shifting their mindset into a generative thought process, where they're visualizing you in this role or visualizing whatever you want them to. All right, so if you look at um, you're watching TV, whatever you watch, you know, you watch a, a show, a sports game, something with commercials. Anytime you see commercials, though, something you'll notice about good advertising is, you know, you know, there's the, the, the funny ones that and that's great. But the stuff that um, that puts you in an imaginative state where it's a car, they're showing you the, what they're not showing you how fast a car goes or how reliable it is. They're showing you happy families. They're showing you good times going to get a Christmas tree. They're showing you a great time out on the town, pulling up to the valet, stepping out and everybody going, man, look at that car. That's amazing. And what they're doing here is they're putting you in the state thinking, man, what if that was me? What if I had that car? You'll even notice a lot of the, a lot of the uh, perspectives that they film from are situations where it's like, like you're there. It's not just, you know, like comic book style, like click, here's a, you know, here's an image of a happy person driving a car. No, it's from inside. It's looking out the windows. It's somebody smiling at you. It's the, that, that music that kind of overwhelms the whole scene that makes you feel like this is something I have. Wow. This is what it would be like to drive a, you know, a whatever, an Edsel. I don't know. But um, if you can do this then during an interview, then this is where you start getting really, really good results. 
and this can obviously this can go either way. You know, before I get into the, some of the, the more of the details, this can go either way. If I'm interviewing somebody that I want to talk, uh, that I want to give me information, I can start talking about here's how bad it's going to be if if I have to take you to jail. Here's how unhappy your wife and kids are going to be. Look around you. Who's going to take care of this place? You can't, you can't protect them. Look at this. People are going to come through the window, that window right over there, you know, that I'm pointing at. You don't want that. So help me help you here. All right. Um, but then we can shift to a positive side. And in something like a job interview, a way you can approach this is like with that question that we just started with, what is a typical workflow look like here? You know, what's it look like during a typical work day or on a typical project or through your training pipeline? And they'll give you, you know, maybe a standard answer. Now you can shift to, okay, how does this apply to me? All right. So in the unlikely event, right, that I get picked up for this, for this position or for this slot or for this opportunity. So I would show up at what, say about nine o'clock. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Where do you, where do you imagine I would start? Where do you see me fitting in here? What's, what's your, your entry level or where do you want me to get to? Where do you see me going here? Where do you see me? Uh, where do you see me working a month from now, two months from now, a year from now? What position will I be at? And in this way, you can kind of, and, and I mean, this is very general because, you know, it could be any different number of jobs or pipelines or whatever. But the idea here is to get this person imagining you showing up, not somebody, not anybody, not random person, not a for example, but you, the guy sitting across from him, guy or girl, guy here used in a generic sense, um, you showing up, this is what it'll look like, here's how I want you to dress, here's, here's about the time you'll start, here's the month that you'll go through this, this, and this training, here's, where, here's a, a, a typical progression, and here's where you can see yourself. Okay, great. So you doing this helps them envision you in that role, which when it comes to decision time, it's, it's might be that thinnest of margins that helps them see you as the person that's kind of already in this job. So let's just make it official. All right. Right. So that's all we've got time for today. Uh, if you've got questions, thoughts, comments, concerns, or you've got an idea for a topic you'd like to hear me rant about, you can hit us up at info at apg.team. And if you like to see what we're, uh, if you like what we're putting out, do feel free to subscribe so you can get our latest in a timely fashion and share these ideas with your friends because, as we always say, the world needs hitters. So, as the sun sets slowly in the east, we'll leave you with the words of Marcel Proust, who observed, For the longest time, I used to go to bed early. that you are not.